0: It is a wonderful thing, O Lord, to trust in Jesus. We thank you that your marvelous grace was determined from all eternity to save a people for yourself. And in due time, the eternal Son of God came and took upon himself flesh, uniting a, a real human nature with his divine nature, For one purpose, to save his people from their sins. And Jesus has, is, and will continue to save all those whom he has loved from the foundation of the world. You've told us to proclaim your marvelous works of being brought out of darkness into light. Teach us now by your spirit wonderful things about who Jesus is, we ask in his glorious name, amen. Amen. We are in John chapter 2, and we're going to address tonight verses 1 through verse 11, or verse 12, And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus was, also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. They took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed a few days. As we look at John chapter 2, we got to remind ourselves again, what was the purpose of John's gospel account? It is given in the end of his gospel account in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Let me just read that. What was the whole purpose of his gospel account? Here's what he says. And many other signs truly Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That is the purpose of the gospel account, to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah the Christ, which is just the Greek name for the Messiah, meaning the anointed one. And what we see here, this is going to be the first of Jesus's miraculous signs in his ministry. Now, what do we understand about a sign? What is the purpose of a sign? Well, a sign is something that points to something else. And a sign in the Bible is designed to point to a deeper spiritual reality so that the signs that Jesus performed in the Bible was designed for one purpose. And that was to demonstrate in a miraculous way that he is indeed the long awaited Messiah. That's why he did these things. Now, if we move a little bit ahead historically in Jesus's ministry, we're going to see that when Jesus was arrested and he was brought before the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the Jews. And when he was brought before him, I want us to, to read that account just for a moment. Verses Turn to Matthew 26, verses 60 through 68. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 60. Well, let's back up to verse 59. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find any. Even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe saying, he has blasphemed, what further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the testimony. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face, beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said to him, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is who is the one hitting you? Now, the reason I brought that up is the whole purpose, again, of John's gospel account is all the actions and particularly the signs of Jesus were designed to demonstrate I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what we see in this, when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, the high priest just point blank put him under oath, and Jesus kept quiet until he was put under oath. At that point, he realized, I, 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 I need to answer. Are you the Christ? Now, notice what the the high priest said. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? And he said, well, you've said it yourself. Elsewhere, Luke says, Jesus said, I am. Now, one of the things is, the Jews understood a limited understanding of what the Messiah would do. But one thing they did understand was that the Messiah, even the high priest says, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? They identified the Son of God with the Messiah. Now, where do we find that in the scriptures? Where would the Jews have gotten this? Well, for one, if you turn with me to Isaiah 35 Isaiah 35 and we're going to pick up at verse 4 So what did the Jews now remember when Jesus found his disciples remember uh, Andrew and John they are amazed because they stayed a day with Jesus. They go and find Peter, and now, now Andrew says, We have found the Messiah. Then they find Nathan- uh, Philip and Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, We have found the Messiah. And Nathaniel was convinced, as we looked at last week that Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus knew something about him nobody else knew. He knew where he was meditating and he knew what he was thinking. So even the fishermen even understood the scriptures and knew that the Messiah would be the son of God. If you look at Isaiah 35 verses four and following, say to those with anxious heart take courage fear not behold your god will come with vengeance the recompense of god will come he will save you the eyes of the, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped then the lame will leap like the deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes and a highway will be there, a roadway. It will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will take It will be for him who walks that way, the fools will not wander on it. We'll stop there. So there it talks about when this one comes, it says, behold, your God, says your God comes with vengeance. Now just turn over to Isaiah 61 and take a look at Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion. So here it talks about, and the day of vengeance of our God. What did Isaiah 35 says? Your God will come with vengeance. Now what do we know about the significance of that passage? Later on in Jesus's ministry, he'll go to Nazareth and to the synagogue, they will hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And it was a custom for certain males to read and he, he's reading that por- this portion of Isaiah and he reads it and he closes it up and says, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. And they go, what are you thinking to say something like this? They knew the implications of Isaiah 61. They knew it was a reference to the son of God. And they were upset because they said, isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter? And then they were ready to go throw him off the cliff and yet Jesus escaped from their midst because the Bible says his hour had not yet come. Now, if you just turn over to Matthew 11, we've referred to this passage uh, several weeks ago. When John the Baptist when he was in prison, sent his disciples to ask Jesus a question, as we mentioned, basically, for the sake of his disciples. Because he said in Matthew 11, beginning at verse three, he said, are you the expected one? That means the Messiah. Or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John What ye hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. So, what Jesus does here, he quotes out of Isaiah and he says, basically, for the sake of his disciples, Am I the Messiah? Well, just look at what I'm doing. That's your answer. And so what we see here is that the Jews understood that the Son of God was the Messiah. Their problem was they just could not bring themselves to believe that this Jesus was that Messiah. Even even though all the signs that Jesus were doing was testifying exactly to what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. So it should be a self-evident truth. But like Jess said earlier, if you got blind eyes, you're not gonna see. So turn back to John 2. We've got Jesus then coming to Cana of Galilee, and the reason he goes there, he and his disciples were invited to this wedding. And we're told in the text that Jesus' mother, who was from Nazareth, was at the wedding. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus' mother obviously had been invited But the the evidence of the text indicates she probably had more of a role in this wedding than just being a guest. And you're going to see why here in just a moment. Because by the time Jesus gets there to this wedding, she says to him, the wine has given out. They have no wine. Now, one thing we ought to understand about jewish weddings it was not unusual for the wedding feast to go on for seven days i mean it was a it was a long drawn out process for some now just think about this feast over a multiple days you better have enough food and you better have enough wine for your guests And we're not told when in that period of time that Jesus and his disciples arrived, but by the time they had arrived, Mary informs him they have already run out of wine. So that's a serious thing. Can you imagine? Uh, Now, we don't have drawn-out wedding feasts. I've never been to one that lasts seven days. Uh, But could you you imagine something uh, at your wedding feast? and you run out of your food staples? It'd be kind of embarrassing, wouldn't it? And so Jesus' mother points this out to him, and we are told here, and he, and he says, Jesus says something interesting to Mary. Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now that was not a disrespectful thing that he said to his mother. We know from the scriptures uh, that that Jesus I mean, when he talks to Mary, what he wants Mary to come to understand is this: "I am more than your son. Mary, you need to come to understand." I am your Lord. Now, Mary actually understood this. You know, there's a song sung during the Christmas season. I like the tune, but the theology just gets me. And it says, Mary, did you know? You may have heard that. Well, every time I hear that, I keep reminding myself, Mary knew a lot. If you read Luke 1, she knew exactly who her son was, and she she made a lot of prophetic pronouncements of what her son, the Lord, would do. What Jesus is trying to draw attention to, to his mother is that my hour has not arrived, meaning that hour of the appointed time when I will lay down my life for the sheep. So if you look, you go through the New Testament, and you, you see where it references my hour has not yet come. We, are, we read where it says that people were trying, like for example in Nazareth when he read in the synagogue, they wanted to throw him off the cliff. There were other uh, times where Jesus made comments of who he was, they tried to get stones to kill him but he, he escaped and the Bible says his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. But the hour that will come is when he was arrested. Remember, uh, Jesus in that night said to him, the power of darkness has been given over to you. This hour has been given over to you. So Jesus wants to make it very clear to his mother who he is, that she recognizes that. And what he's about to do is gonna demonstrate who he really is. Because if you look at the text, we're told that Jesus comes to them and he says, now, well, first of all, in verse five, Jesus' mother said to the servants, do whatever whatever my son tells you. Whatever he tells you to do, just go do it. Now that indicates, you you gotta ask yourself this question. We know from the scriptures that there were many signs, just like John says, that Jesus did that weren't recorded. We don't know what may have happened, but the fact that Mary says this to Jesus, someone could say, well, what could Jesus do about it? They've run out of wine. And so when she says to the servants, do what he says, it's implying she knew that Jesus could do something about this. He had the power to do it. Now, in this regard, Jesus says in verse seven, well, let's back up to verse six. It says, "Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Now let let's put this into perspective. Six of these huge containers that normally would be filled with water. It was used for purification rites. We're told that the uh, elders would baptize furniture uh, with this this water. And so you got six of these things, 100 to 150 gallons of water that's about to get changed (laughs) into wine. So you think, 150 gallons of wine? Notice what Jesus does. He says, I want you to put the water, fill it up to the brim, take it to the head waiter, and they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water, which had, which had become wine, Stop right there. The miracle had happened instantaneously. The minute they filled it up the water and the minute that Jesus said to the waiters, take it to the head waiter right now, the miracle had already occurred. The water, 100 to 150 gallons of water had been changed into wine. And we're told... That the servants they go. Uh, it says the head waiter did not know where it came from, because they had run out. Remember, they had run out of wine. He didn't know where this what, this wine had come from. He goes to the goes to the bridegroom and says to him, "Now look." Most bridegrooms, they have control over what's going to go on the feast. They save, they use up the good wine first, and then uh, as as the wedding feast uh, progresses, then you use the lesser wine. Why did you save the best wine to the last? Only going to show when God does something, he does it the best way. That's what it demonstrates. And... Now, I guess we got to, I don't want to dwell on this, but we got to deal with it somewhat. How does the Bible view wine in the scriptures? Well, I want us to take a look at um, several texts. First of all, I want you to turn over to Genesis 14, verse 18. Now, one of the great figures of the Old Testament is Melchizedek. The uniqueness about Melchizedek was that he was a king and a priest, king of Salem, and uh, he was a priest of God, the Most High. And one thing we gotta remember is that the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 7, begins to say, Jesus is not of the Levitical order of Aaron in that priesthood, Jesus is of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And the reason is he's of the order of Melchizedek is because just as Melchizedek was a kingly priest, so is Jesus a kingly priest. That's why he's after the order of Melchizedek. So this, this personage of whom Abraham will bow down to and Abraham will pay a tithe to Melchizedek, understanding the greatness of Melchizedek. What does Melchizedek, this great person, is bring? Look at verse 18. He brings out bread and wine is what he brings out. Um, So we might say, what kind of wine was that? Well, turn over to Deuteronomy 14. Look at verse 26. Now, we're told that at a special time, men were to come to Jerusalem for a special time. And we're told in verse 24 and following, and if the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses and you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires. There you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Now, the the question remains, what was that type of wine that was used? And in the history of the church in modern times, there has been opinions, a divided opinion. Well, the wine that the Bible talks about, and especially of Jesus, could not have been an alcoholic, could not have been fermented. It it could not have been intoxicated because why would God do such a thing? Well, the, the overwhelming preponderance of the scripture indicates that wine was indeed fermented. Now, there's an interesting uh, occurrence. that This is significant because someone would say, would Jesus ever partake of a fermented beverage? Well, let's let the scripture answer that question. Turn to Matthew 11. And look at verses 18 and 19. Now, I want you to follow closely what has been said. For John, he's referring to John the Baptist. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. A friend of tax gatherers and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You, perhaps you know this about John the Baptist. He took a Nazarite vow he wasn't the only one to have a Nazarite vow. If you took a Nazarite vow for a time, you, had, you, were, you were pledging yourself to a very rigorous ascetic. We've talked about asceticism when we were in the book of Colossians. You are saying, I will restrict myself. And one of the requirements was you could not drink wine during that vow of being a Nazarite. John, here's what they're saying. John the Baptist did not drink this. He didn't come eating and drinking. But the Son of Man came both and drink, came both and drinking. Drinking what? Drinking wine. What, what did they call Jesus? They accused him of being a drunkard, is what they accused him of. Now One of the things that we got to uh, understand that the nature of wine as used in the scriptures did have an intoxicating nature to it. Here's the thing. The scripture always forbid the abuse of it. Turn to, uh, for example, turn to Isaiah 28, seven. Isaiah 28, 7. And here is a condemnation of what was happening to the priests in Israel. Look at verse 7. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine, they stagger. From strong drink, they reel while having visions; they totter while rendering judgment. Now we've already been told that when Israel would come to feast, they could buy whatever they want. They could buy wine. They could buy strong drink. Here, what's being Isaiah saying, condemning them? These are people who abused. Who abused it? You can abuse certain things and they did abuse it. Turn to, but what they're abusing is a beverage that obviously was fermented and you need to watch how much you drink. Turn to 1 Timothy 3.8. This is in the requirements of of uh, deacons. Notice what verse eight says: First Timothy three verse eight. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double tongued or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. So, what the point here is, I just wanted to bring all this out so that we understand that miracle of Jesus. And Jesus converts that water into actual wine. And again, it would have to be a fermented beverage. Now, why it was the best, we're not told why it was considered the best, but it was. I don't know anything beyond that. But Jesus did Jesus partake of that? More than likely, yes, because he came eating and drinking, unlike John, who had that Nazarite vow. And because he was doing that, he was accused of being a drunkard. So let's just be clear as to the nature of Of what Jesus did. Now, turn back to John 2. And what we see here, after Jesus did this miraculous sign, and by the way, this was the first of his miraculous signs, because it says in verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did, in Canaan of Galilee. And what was the purpose of the signs? They were meant to manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. What these signs did, of which this was the first that Jesus performed, proved his divine authority and his majesty, that's what it demonstrated. Uh, would you not consider it incredible to instantaneously change water into wine? Instantaneously, because that's what happened. And that's what Jesus did. And it was, had to be awe-inspiring to the guests and especially to those servants who were told to fill up water. They got what has just happened? And that was his purpose. And as a result of this, it says that his disciples, because of this miracle, they believed in him. Now, we already know from John 1, in the calling of the disciples, they did believe he was the Messiah. And that's why they were following him. They recognized he was the Messiah. What this is indicate is their understanding is building is what is demonstrating it's building from what who he is as the messiah and it's building to who he is and what he's going to accomplish in this regard to show you that the the disciples faith or their belief in Jesus uh, when it says here they believed in him, well, they believed in him to an extent. Moving ahead in Jesus's ministry, do you remember after after Jesus did another miraculous sign of feeding the 5,000 with minimal bread and fish, it says he gets into the boat, goes out in the sea, big storm arises, they're about to perish, And because the boat's filling up, they go back to Jesus, don't you care? We're perishing, we're perishing. Jesus gets up, rebukes the storm, this great storm, which was not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. You know, they'd say even today, there can be 70 mile an hour storms on the Sea of Galilee. By the way, that's a category one hurricane. So it's not unusual for, and it says to come out of nowhere. It can be fine as you cross, and it's only like 20 miles or 15 miles across, but you can be crossing, and all of a sudden, a great storm can be upon you, and that's what happened. And so Jesus gets up, and he says, hush, and the storm ceases, and the waters that had to be raging because of the wind, a calm sea, and you remember what the disciple says? Who is this that even the uh, nature obeys him? So you see, all right, they've seen the miracle of the changing of water into wine. They've seen the miracle of him feeding the five thousand, uh, and then they're going to see another miracle, and then they're going to, they're still saying. Their their understanding is growing as Jesus performs more and more miracles. You know, as we pro- progress through uh, the, the gospel account, especially of John, because John is the one that deals most with these signs. Because remember, again, the purpose is Why did he he do the signs? To prove that he's the Christ, the son of God. That's why he did it. And it's gonna be more revealing to them. And again, what Jesus in Matthew 16, 17, let me read that again. Later on, Jesus is gonna ask his disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Come back. And then Peter says, you are the Christ. Notice what Peter says. You are the Christ, the Son of God. He understood. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, just because a sign is given doesn't guarantee that everybody is going to be persuaded. When we get to John six, it's gonna be very evident that the only reason Jesus says he did not commit himself to some people because he knew they were there just to see the miracle worker. They were, a lot of people followed Jesus because he was the greatest entertainment that they had ever seen, right? But they didn't, they were not really believing in him Keep that in mind when we get to John eight when it says there are some that believed in him were his disciples and yet Jesus will say to those in John eight, we're the sons of Abraham. He says, no you're not, you're the sons of the devil. He said that to some who had believed him. So just because you've seen an incredible sign Does it mean you were persuaded? Remember, 1 Corinthians 10 says all of Israel was baptized in the Red Sea when they came across, and yet it says that most of those who came out of Egypt perished in their sins. And as Hebrew says, they did not enter the land of canaan why because of unbelief you think about that for a moment coming to a sea and see the sea opened and you cross it and then you witness when pharaoh's army comes and it closes up and your enemy is utterly decimated wouldn't that have been something you this is truly, this is truly the real God. But what do we find happening soon? Them worshiping a golden calf. <laughs> Seriously? You see, just the performance of a sign doesn't convince anybody. As we want to see Jesus, what we'll say in Luke 16, when the uh, the beggar dies and the rich man dies and the beggar is in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man is in hell, and the rich man is begging uh for God to send to his brothers to warn them not to come to this place of torment. And they said, um, He says, If someone were if you were to have someone rise from the dead, they would believe. You remember what was said, this is one of the great passages in Scriptures. It says, If they're not persuaded by Moses And the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So, just the performance of a sign isn't convincing. It was to the disciples of Jesus. Why? Because God had chosen to reveal truth to them. And I've mentioned this before if you understand who Jesus is, Don't so much pat yourself on the back saying, boy, I'm really smart. It's because God has had mercy on you. It's because God has revealed truth to you. And for anybody to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior means they have had to have truth revealed to them. And sometimes those who see these signs, like the disciples, then God grants them the, the grace to, to see this and go, wow, this is our God. This is our, our Savior. You know, one other thing that we can learn about uh, the, the wedding in, in, in Cana of Galilee, it really confirms the fact, I think in a uh, subsidiary way, Jesus's sanctioning of the marriage institution the fact that he would go to a wedding now what do we understand about Jesus well after all what does the bible say about him he is the bridegroom come to his bride and who is his bride us the church And he has come to his church to redeem her and to sanctify her, and I think it's noteworthy. His first great miraculous sign was at a marriage feast. So the glory of Jesus is being progressively revealed And to those whom God is going to open their eyes to are going to progressively see how majestic Jesus really is. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to marvel in who our Lord and Savior is. We thank you that our understanding of who Jesus is is actually a gift. You have opened our eyes and as Jesus would preach like in the parables, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You've opened our ears. You've opened our eyes. And so we rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Glory be to Jesus. Amen.